it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Situation and the Story podcast and a hearty welcome if this is your first time here. Super appreciate you listening. I'm your host, Chris Moore, coming to you from the Denver area. I just want you guys to know how much I appreciate you listening. If you're looking for other ways to support um, that are free, won't cost you a dime, you can hop on over to iTunes leave a star rating, write a quick review about the show. It really helps boost and promote what what I have going on over here. Um, And tell your friends about the show. Spread the word. Greatest uh, greatest way to grow an audience is word of mouth. So tell all your friends. If you do want to support monetarily, you can head over to patreon.com slash situation and story and give some uh, money over there monthly support or head to anchor.fm slash situation and story click the support button right on the home page you guys have a few options for monthly pledges and you can stop anytime but if you really enjoy the content it would be so appreciated if you could support in any of those ways for this um, episode, I sat down with Deborah A. Lott, the author of Don't Go Crazy Without Me, published by Redhead Press um, early 2020. I was able to pick up this book at AWP in San Antonio, and I'm thankful I did because it led to our conversation that you're tuning into today, and it has been one of my favorite conversations, I think, from the start of the show. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. All right. Good morning for you, I think, right? Just barely, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for joining. Thank you. Um, Yeah. As always, uh, first question is, why do you write? You know, I was thinking about that because I was listening to some of your other podcasts. And my question is, why don't people write? I don't understand how you cannot need to write to capture your experience. I started writing as a really young kid dictating stories. And I think it was really because I was always obsessed with losing things, losing people, losing time, losing experiences. And it felt like a way to hold on and control. There's probably a a control need that comes with it. Um, I started out writing poetry, but I think I'm a memoirist at heart. I think it was always about trying to capture experience and consciousness. 
Yeah, and you talk about loss a lot in your book, Don't Go Crazy Without Me. Yes. Uh, so that makes sense. I randomly picked up your book, I think at AWP. Would it have been at at the one in San Antonio? Probably, yes. Yeah, I saw the cover and I read the back and I thought, I'm going to get this. So okay. I did. Thank you. <laughs> And then you reached out to me, and I was like, hey, I already have that book. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about it. Great. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So let's just kind of start with your description of the book. If you gave a, a synopsis or an elevator pitch, what that would sound like. I guess it's about growing up under the influence of a very charismatic and neurotic I always thought neurotic father who later had a psychotic break and nearly going crazy along with him and just somehow not having enough of an anchor in my mother as sort of an alternate reality to keep myself from going crazy um, and then sort of having to pull back and having to sort of reason my way out of insanity yeah I could relate on some level to kind of your childhood methods for controlling or obsessing and things for things like that to kind of would you say it was kind of to cope with anxiety I've always been anxious I'm still really anxious I mean that's the truth I don't, I don't think you ever stop being anxious if you're an anxious person I yeah. was obsessive I mean I had a lot of obsessive compulsive kind of behavior as a young kid and then later and then um, when my dad started to really lose it my OCD really kicked up into high gear and I think I was trying to control the chaos there was a lot of of chaos um, yeah. it's like a way of making order yeah it's a way of making or trying to control the universe yeah I remember having kind of I don't know if you would call them OCD tendencies but I was always an anxious kid as well and I remember in the house I grew up in um, when you walked down the stairs there was like a wooden overhang mm -hmm. and every time I went down the stairs I had to touch it or something bad was going to happen <laughs> I had similar things like on the, I played a lot of basketball at the park in the in the neighborhood and I had to I had this whole kind of routine for making my last shot and bouncing it so many times before I could leave the court and, and I never would have known it then but definitely some some kind of way of creating order maybe where I felt kind of like I didn't have control mm -hmm. rules so. for the universe yeah yeah I had a sock thing which I still kind of have little remnants of where if I don't wear the right socks at at certain occasions something bad will happen mm. and I will take a pair of socks even now and think no maybe not the right pair um yeah it was amazing to me towards the end of the memoir uh, when you were kind of in your teenage years and received that diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia and you were like, that's it. Like, I'm going to do what my mom says and get a hold of myself. <laughs> and you were able to like stop those 
kind of stop those obsessions. I thought that was pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of it with my mom was kind of, you know, stop the Mishagas already. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, just fighting back against the compulsions because I was really scared. I mean, at that point, my father was in a psych hospital and I was right. really scared of winding up in a psych hospital, too. Right. Um, I didn't like the way that was looking. So it really had to, I mean, a, a part of the ritual I was doing at that point was nodding, where every time I would write something, I'd have to undo it, which was really hell. Because my papers for school would just look like, you know, like mar everything was marked out. Um, yeah. And I just had to stop myself from doing that. And yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of funny <laughs> when you you stopped yourself from nodding, but then you nodded the nodding. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was that was funny. Those you, loops, you just get stuck in these loops. Yeah, yeah. And if you give in to these compulsions, they just get more and more powerful and demanding. I mean, yeah. they're, they're like a you know a merciless god where they right. just keep asking for more and more. So you, you, it sounds like you still have a couple. Little little ones, the socks, anything else? I still have a tendency to start to think that way. Um, and I try to avoid it in my writing. But I, I have it when I'm writing student evals. Strangely, mm. that's when it kicks in. Because I worry about, oh, my God. you know, the, the, Probably half my students don't even read the evals or care. But... <laughs> I start to think, oh, should I say that this student is wonderful or incredible or something right. bad will happen? Or should I tell the absolute truth and something even worse will happen? Right. So that that's when it tends to kick in for me, when I'm having to write something that involves judgment. Right. It is like those value words. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So where are you teaching? I teach at Antioch, University of Los Angeles. Nice. I teach in the um, BA program, so it's students returning to complete BA degrees who've somehow gone astray earlier in their education. Right. How do you like it? I, I love my students. I think of us as sort of the lost boys with Peter Pan, except we're not all boys. We're, we're everything. Yeah. But, but um, everyone has had life. Most of my students are in their 30s. Right. And everyone has had hardship, and some people have had substance abuse issues, and some people have have gone off to Ivy League schools and somehow not succeeded or gone a little nuts. So we're all a little nuts together, and I love it. And my, my students um, have absolutely no respect for authority, which <laughs> I love. Good, yeah. And ask impossible questions. Yeah. Uh, yeah, good. I think the teaching keeps me sane. I really love the teaching. Good. All right, so let's back up a little bit. We're going to talk about your book, Don't Go Crazy Without Me, and um, kind of wanted to have you give listeners an idea of the family background up front. Okay, so my, my parents were both from families that had immigrated from Russia, Jews, um, my mother's family was very stoic, political, not religious. My father 
um, mother was Orthodox Jewish, so he was raised with a lot of religion, which he had a, a very kind of ambivalent relationship to. They both grew up in Detroit. Um, my mother had warning signs about my father early on that he was not a very sane person. She was already stockpiling drugs for him because he had a lot of physical symptoms. She had migraine headaches and they were giving her narcotics, which she was stockpiling for him even before they got married. And then they moved to Arizona as a couple um, and then to California. And I think that my dad really would have been happiest as an actor. I think that's what he really wanted. He wanted to be on the stage. But he had a physical deformity. He had deformed hands and limbs. Um, so acting wasn't really a possibility. So they opened an insurance agency. And we wound up living in La Crescenta, where we were really the only Jews in a very conservative, Republican, a lot of evangelical Christians surrounding us, trying to convert us on a regular basis. Um, and my dad was very, you know, eccentric is the way I thought about it when I was very young. I mean, he would often go out on the front porch in his underwear and not think anything of it and wave to the neighbors. And the yeah. neighbors were scandalized, of course, but right. he was doing it because he needed to check the temperature or he mm -hmm. needed to hang a flag because he was feeling very patriotic that day. So how mm -hmm. could anyone possibly object to that behavior? Right. Um, and then my parents were kind of mismatched, but seemed to be in love. But my mom was like very shut down and withdrawn and not emotional. And my father was probably bipolar, but not diagnosed. So it would range from mania to anger to depression. Um, so it was a very chaotic household. And they were running an insurance agency out of a bedroom of our house. Right. And this was the 1960s? Well, I was born in 52. Okay. So most of the book takes place in the 60s. Okay. And and ends like towards the end of the 60s. Yeah. So at that time, I mean, the story, at least of your father, doesn't really end very happily. I wonder if you think it would have been different had it, had it happened present day because you were saying I think he, he would have been it would have been medicated yeah sooner probably right um and diagnosed but who knows right you know who knows what somebody's trajectory is going to be I mean there were so many variables um I mean there are other people in my family who are bipolar who are medicated who are who are functioning better um, yeah. I don't I don't think that he necessarily would have gotten all the shock treatment that he wound up getting. Right. That I'm not sure that it really helped. Yeah. And they still do that today, believe it or not. Yeah, no, I know and they they think it works well, but it's it, they don't do it quite the same way. And he right. was on Thorazine for most yeah. of the rest of his life, which is a pretty heavy duty killer antipsychotic. Yeah. So he was muted, but he was still crazy. <laughs> right. I want to I want to talk a little bit about that word crazy because anymore it's kind of like a pejorative. I know. Which I didn't feel that way reading the book and the title obviously drew me in instead of anything else, but why that choice of word? 
I, you know, and I thought about it a lot. I thought about don't, don't be mentally ill without me. I, I mean, it right. just, because <laughs> I think there was, there was a certain craziness that wasn't even the mental illness that was just sort of the family dynamic um, and the way we interacted with it, with each other and the situation of being the only Jews in that community um, and having to hide a lot of behavior and being eccentric and, um, I mean, the word in Yiddish is mishagas, which right. which is really the word, I think, that, that applies even better than crazy. But I know it's not, and, and I would never disparage mental illness. There's so much mental illness in my family. Right. Um, but it just seemed like crazy was the only way to dis- to describe it. Yeah, and if, I mean... After reading the book, it definitely feels earned. I mean, <laughs> um, so <laughs> you're a father. I love him. I know. <laughs> I, like you did a remarkable job of, of making us as readers sympathetic to him and making him so human, even amid all the eccentricity and um, knowing how young you were, it was just kind of in the opening fun. I was like, I could see this as a character in a TV show. I could see this becoming a Netflix special mm-hmm. or a movie. Mm-hmm. And I could just picture this character of your father who was a character. Um, and he's still so relatable. Um, so I just wanted to say, outstanding job on, on... Thank you. Yeah. And he was fun, and he was lovable, and he was really funny. But he was also, inher- you know, amazingly destructive in yeah. some of the neuroses that he passed on about food poisoning yeah. and about the dangers of the world. Um, he was such a funny combination because yeah. he loved to have a good time. He loved to go to movies. Um, but then he would say things like we went to the drive-in once and he would said that the pizza at the drive-in had rat feathers in it. And we, <laughs> and wow. as a kid, it's like, what are rat feathers? <laughs> Rats yeah. don't have feathers. So he's, he was such an odd, um, combination of really fun when he was fun and really scary when he was angry um, and, and, and destructive, but very mm. lovable. And a lot of people in our little Jewish community still think of him as being the rabbi because he was a lay rabbi. They still think of him as being the wise rabbi. It's interesting. Um, it was very vivid how another thing you did a great job at is vividly portraying that incredibly vulnerable relationship between you and 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 your father and how susceptible you were to his ways of thinking i was really close to my father my mother it was also kind of the cold Mm -hmm. one um Mm -hmm. but then my mother has the kind of fear of the world and the paranoia about things Mm. not to the same extreme but she definitely like you, I was always trying to un- get her to love me or understand why she couldn't love me. And and um, at the same time, she's instilling all this fear into me about the world around me. So mm. 
it was an interesting read for me in that in that light. And maybe she thought that was love, like giving Protection. you the fear of the world was the right. way she gave you love. I mean, right. when I think about my mother, the actual practical things that she did, making sure that I got into college, making sure I got to school every day, um, you know, putting food on the table, because my, my father was really unreliable for all of that. So all of that sounds like love. I mean, that right. was in practical terms love, but right. I never felt love in the way that I felt it from my father. Right. It was love, but not affection. Not affection. She, she was, I mean, she was raised in a very kind of distant Russian, you know, family where she had a sister that you could not touch. Right. To hug. I don't know whether there was a little bit of on the spectrum stuff going on, but you would approach her to hug her and she would literally put her hands up like, don't touch me. So that's where my mother grew up, and and so she wasn't. Uh, I mean, she, I, she she didn't have pleasure in her body. I've been writing recently about her and my body, the relationship between our two bodies, and I don't think I ever saw her take real pleasure in her body. Right. So how do you convey that to a daughter if you can't experience it yourself? Yeah, it's like you have two you know two different parents that are disembodied but in different ways one mm -hmm. is cut off from her body and pleasure and one's overly <laughs> obsessed with the body um i just think that's so interesting because i see both of those things in me as well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and i i've gone through bouts of kind of the hypochondria and and that kind of paranoia throughout my life in response to life events and things and so i could relate to all the all the little kind of mental gymnastics throughout the book yeah that's a good way of putting it because you're, you're trying to find some middle ground between the two parents all the time when they're at odds right you that's know so what's awesome. real you're you're constantly grappling with what's real and how can i be in the world should i be yeah. like him should i be like her is there some other way to be I was really excited to see that you included so much about your own bodily pleasure as a kid. Yeah. Um, especially given kind of the coldness of mom. And it's it was interesting because your father used to talk about her like she was, you know, um, she had a high sex drive. I know. I, well, I only heard, only learned that much later as an adolescent. I heard that. Okay. Um, but when I was, a, I mean, and I was a masturbator. I hope that's okay to say in here. Yeah. I was, I was a big time masturbator. Yeah. Um, as Same a here. young child and also a fantasizer about adult men, not my dad. Right. Um, I don't think anything really sexual happened with my dad, although he was sexualizing everything all the time. Right. Um, but I remember being really turned on. There was a Western on TV called Rawhide. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> About these. Clint, I think Clint Eastwood. I think that was one of Clint Eastwood's first part. Don't, I may be wrong. Okay. But I would watch these cowboys wrestling these cattle and it would turn me on and I'd masturbate. I don't know why that was the turn on. 
There was yeah. a particular Porky Pig cartoon that really turned me on. <laughs> so I have like my own childhood pornography going. Right. Um, but yeah, my mom had a very negative reaction to my masturbating. So I started to to feel guilty about it and to ascribe bad things that happened to yeah. it. But I was a sexual kid. I was a really sexual adolescent. I, I'm really suspicious of memoirs I read about childhood where there's no sexuality. Right. Like, what? No, it's not there? <laughs> really? Right. My, for, my memoir in progress opens right away with that, with that kind of scene, like the first time I masturbated. So, like, let's, get, let's cut to the point. Yeah. How, how you know, old this, were you? Um, I was in fifth grade. Oh, wow. So I was 10. I mean, I mean, consciously, right? Because, mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. I know a lot of young, young kids are mm -hmm. doing it without even noticing. But that was the first time I was like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> um, and then it was like game over for the next 10 years. It's like what all made, I did. What, oh, oh, that you kept doing it. Oh, yeah. It's like <laughs> anywhere. Uh, so so I could also relate to that a bit and it was it was just such a reliable trustworthy narrator so I appreciated that thank you <laughs> yeah I, well I just get really confessional when I'm writing memoir I feel like oh, I gotta spill it all and yeah. then afterwards I'm like what did I do what, what, <laughs> what was I thinking right so you are this is through Red Hen Press to uh one of my mentors has several books published by them, and I, I did a couple of their contests to no avail. But um, how, was, how was kind of the, the publishing process for you? It, you know, I, so I started out my book. I had a New York agent. We, we went the route of trying to sell it to a big house. None of the big houses would take it. I was basically at the point of, of giving up. Um, I reworked the book some, and then I sent it to Red Hand Press myself. I, I knew Eloise Klein-Healy. She had been a mentor of mine, mm -hmm. and she had um, an imprint with them, and I just I, I just kind of sent it to, to Kate Gale in the press myself. Yeah. And they got it. Thank God they got yeah, it. thank God. God yeah. they, they got it, and... I, I think they published some really great books and really yeah, like, appreciate the books that sometimes the big houses don't understand. Exactly. And it's, I mean, you are a writer. Thank you. Um, so I'm, I'm glad it ended up at Red Hen, to be honest. Um, I am too. I yeah. am too. But I, there were years when I was kind of despairing that it would end up anywhere. Right. So... So how was the process of writing it? How long ago did you kind of, I mean, you've always been a writer, so I'm sure it was floating in your brain throughout the years. Well, and I was writing about my childhood in my journal always for years and years and years. And then I finally started writing short pieces that I was publishing in lit journals. Um, but I wrote another book about psychotherapy where I interviewed a bunch of women. I mean, I really saw myself as more of a, of a journalist Right. A narrative nonfiction writer and a kind of a, a secret closet um, memoir writer. Yeah. And then I and then I started publishing short pieces and wasn't really thinking that it was going to be one narrative. 
and then finally it started to take shape as a continu- continuous narrative. So it was really years. Yeah. And working with several writers groups and an editor and um and then I the the present day interludes were really added pretty late on in the process where I thought, you know, what I'm really often obsessed with is how my childhood keeps resonating in my adult life. Mm-hmm. So why don't I write some of those segments too? So it's not just about the coming of age, but it's about how those events keep keep reverberating. Yeah, I was curious about that structure. It, my intuition said that that probably was a later decision. Um, it's kind of written, though, in first-person present, right, as a child. Um... I think it's pretty much, it's past it's tense. Past, there are some yeah. episodes, I think, that where it goes into the present tense. There is a difference between the present day. Yeah, the voice is a little different. The, exactly. Yeah, the present day episodes, and I'm I'm looking, I guess, I guess they're, they're in the, in, they're in present tense. Right. So that's what's different. They're consistently in present tense. I still, I felt like I was there with the child narrator, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I went back and forth on the present day episodes. I mean, I, 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 I like being able to show kind of where both of my parents wound up and take them all the way to their deaths. And I like being able to to show kind of the ironies of my working with psychiatrists as a as a writer writing about child trauma. Yeah. When I kind of had all this this baggage I wasn't necessarily talking about. Right. And I felt that they had a lot of baggage they weren't talking about too. Yeah. Um. So I feel okay about the present day episodes, but I get what you mean that they 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 feel a little different. Yeah. Um, but totally relevant. I'm glad they're there because, um, it gives us, you know, more of a sense of closeness to you. Um, and yeah, like you said, that ever present, you know, childhood is inserting itself in your adult life all the time. Is that accurate? Yeah, it is for me. And I, I, mean, I know there are people who say, oh, I don't remember much of my childhood and don't think about it. My childhood is constantly coming back. It's all, it's, it's, you know, in the regular narration of my brain or memories that pop up, it's constantly just childhood all the time, yeah. every day. And is it so, random? Does it feel random? Because a lot of my memories are random. I can't figure out why I have certain associations to certain things. It does feel random. Um, and the things that I do remember are very vivid, whereas there's also whole years of my life that feel lost. Like my third grade year, I don't remember anything. But then I can vividly tell you, you know, what my fourth and fifth grade classrooms look like, my kindergarten, my first grade um, so, yeah, they're just always popping up, and it could be from any any point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you write about them when they pop up? Uh, 
I haven't been writing for for quite a while. I did my first draft of my memoir and it was really difficult to revisit and kind of re-traumatizing. Mm-hmm. So like the the most formative experiences I feel like were written about in that draft and you know it still needs a ton of work but since I put that down it's I've kind of been like playing with ideas in my head. I've been kind of fictionalizing some of those memories Hmm. into short stories. Um, But I probably, I mean, I take notes in my phone all the time, write the story Mm -hmm. of when you learn to ride your bike, write the story, like these vivid memories that just stick out. And I don't know why. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why certain things come back. Yeah to me and and then and then figuring out which of those really belong in the memoir and and which don't it's it's quite a challenge I mean I feel like I could write my whole childhood a whole other book about my whole childhood that would be a completely different book yeah and you and you could (laughs) and I hope you do (laughs) because I want to read it I don't think anyone else thank you so much (laughs) but I I don't know I don't know how many people out there want to keep reading about it Oh, I, I at one point I was going to write a whole book just about kindergarten. When I first really? started out, I thought I'm just going to write a whole memoir about my kindergarten year, and then I I said nobody's going to want to read that book. <laughs> I, I did, I did wonder how you decided kind of what, what, where to begin and end as far as the time period of your life, because I have trouble. I have a lot of trouble with that in in writing mine, and I'm like, is this two different books? Is this three different books? Does it all belong in here? How did you decide? I, it, it was kind of an ongoing debate with myself and with the help of, of editors because, I mean, even when it got to Red Hand Press, there's one chapter that got deleted mm-hmm. um, and condensed into just a couple paragraphs. So, and I have um, drawers full of other episodes. Um, I just, like, like I knew it would begin with my father talking about this is your first death. Right. I always knew that that was, that was kind of the starting point, <laughs> that that was really the significant moment that kind of got me on a certain, a certain path yeah. and the relationship that he established with me with around memory. And then I just kind of ended it at sort of the traditional coming of age point where you you make it out of high school and you look like you're going to make it out of the house out out of your family right and so much of me wants to keep that part of my story in the book in my book like here's what happened afterwards you know Mm -hmm. like but then it's like I need an end point here it's hard to it's hard to decide sometimes the, the what comes afterwards works though in the same book yeah. I mean, I just, it just sort of depends on the emotional arc, I guess. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of where I'm stuck, I think, with finishing this beast. Well, and it's all artificial. I mean, it comes, when it comes down to it, there's, there's no real end I know. until you're dead. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> nothing really gets resolved. I mean, you have these little epiphanies, but for the sake of the book, you make it, seem like things are more resolved than maybe they ever really are yeah so i was curious in your 
book with your father, you know, by the end he's in uh, a mental hospital, heavily drugged, electroshock therapy. Um, and when we're kids, we, you know, we see things differently. <laughs> now you might, now it might be, okay, my father is mentally ill. He's in the hospital. He's kind of a, you know, he's not going to go back to how he was. Mm -hmm. I'm curious now that you're older, do you think he was always that bad? Well, you know, I go back and forth. I still go back and forth because I have that moment in the book where he's hallucinating at the window and seeing people who weren't there. And that was kind of the moment where I went, uh-uh, I, I can't go there with him. This is too limit. far. This is really nutty. This is not okay. Yeah. Um, and then having to sort of reassess, well, how nutty was he all, all along? Because my mother had taught us to think of him as neurotic. Right. Whatever that meant. <laughs> <laughs> so was he delusional when he thought that there was always botulism in the food or a high risk of there being botulism in the food? Um, did he really see rat feathers? <laughs> did he see rat feathers or did he just imagine rat feathers? I mean, he was always hypochondriacal and had a lot of afflictions, you know, right. most of which doctors could never really diagnose. Yeah. Um so I go back and forth with how how really mentally ill was he? And I think that probably he was bipolar one and he probably had episodes of psychosis all along that just weren't as bad as the one when his mother died that he couldn't pull his way out of it. Because right. even in the book, my mother does say to me, you know, your father's kind of had episodes like this before. Right. But I had never seen him be that full-blown psychotic. And right. he was also drug addicted. Right. I mean, he was taking a lot of um, benzos and, and other downers. So I don't know how, how much of the a actual like hallucination and delusions about the FBI mm -hmm. had, had, whether the drugs had some impact in that. Um, but I'm constantly like reappraising how crazy was he and... How much of it did I still take in? Because I'm still, I still have like a constant struggle with my body, mm. with symptoms and with, is this a real illness? Right. Is, is this, am I telling myself I'm feeling this? Am I overly sensitive? And, you know, what what's going on here between me and my body and right. my father's influence? And I wondered that about him as well, um, thinking of the parasites that he thought were in his abdomen mm. did he really feel that was that some sort of psychosomatic thing um i think he felt something and with, i mean i've been diagnosed with fibromyalgia where i have pain all over my body mm. and when i think back of him i think he probably had fibromyalgia um because he had a lot of pain and he had a lot of distress, but the way he interpreted it, the fantasies that he would make up about it and the relationship with, that he had with doctors, where he would kind of idolize them and then degrade them when they couldn't right. figure out what was wrong with him. Right. Um, and always sort of looking for the perfect healer who would figure out what was wrong with him and save him. 
So, yeah, were there parasites? I don't think there were parasites, <laughs> but I can imagine parasites really easily <laughs> My husband will say to me, I can tell you you have a pain in your elbow, and he'll tell me you have a pain in your elbow. Mm. I'm still very suggestible about my mm. body. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that he probably was, too. And he just had a crazy imagination. Yeah. What do you do, or what have you done to kind of work on that, if, if that makes sense? I mean kind of rebuild uh, do you trust your body let me ask you no absolutely not yeah, me either. <laughs> <laughs> no way my yeah. body is is, is treacherous <laughs> i you know I, I read about a guy who was a radiologist who became obsessed with giving himself x-rays every day mm. because he was constantly confronting people's really dire diagnoses so he thought that he would just like lay down on his x-ray table every day and make sure there was nothing bad going on inside. And they yeah. finally had to take his license away and his x-ray <laughs> machine away. <laughs> and I think of myself as that guy that I would, I would love an MRI scan every absolutely. day of every part of my body. Because what's it doing in there? Yeah, exactly. I, it, yeah. And it, then It's doing all these things that we have no control or knowledge of, right? Yes. When my, um, my, what do they call it now? I, they call it now, or I was diagnosed with health anxiety. I don't know if that. Oh, I love that. I love uh, that. Health anxiety. Yeah. So, uh, or health anxiety disorder. I don't know. I'd have to look it up. But when I was really bad, um, and thinking I had cancer or thinking I, you know, what it could be anything meningitis because my neck hurts i mean the list went on i similar to your dad i would go to a doctor and want somebody to tell me something was wrong because then i could feel connected to my body like see i knew it mm -hmm. <laughs> see i know something about my body mm -hmm. but people just i mean mm, that hypo hypochondriasis has taken on it's laughed at a lot. So my family members, my friends will just call me crazy. And you're like, you're really believing that something's wrong and you're feeling these things. It's like pretty lonely. And yeah, yeah. And the pain is real. I think the pain is real. Whether it's coming from some, some kind of like miss. Sometimes I think I'm like needing to be rewired in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> that. that that the pain and the belief, you know, yeah. neural networks need to be rewired or something. But the but the pain is is real, and the internet is not our friend. No, <laughs> it's really not our friend. No, because you can look up any symptom and and read about the most dire diagnoses associated with that symptom, and start to, to believe it. Oh yes, I used to carry around for no medical reason whatsoever a blood sugar monitor <laughs> and i would prick my finger multiple times throughout the day and check my blood sugar just like like you said about the guy the doctor with the x-ray machine that would have been me too god i wish i could check you know that's so fascinating why blood sugar is there diabetes in your family nope um i do have kind of something called um reactive hypoglycemia if i if i eat 
like a really carby breakfast within an hour or two i'm like you know my blood sugar does mm-hmm. drop it's but i'm not diabetic or anything it was just another control thing mm-hmm. um and yeah and since COVID, I think we all have the, the pulse oximeters. I don't know if you have a pulse oximeter, but I'm constantly checking my my O2. You know, oh good, I'm oxygenated today. Right. I Nothing could be that bad. I don't have one. I I've I was prescribed an an SSRI for my anxiety, and it's been about probably four or five years since the hypochondria stuff has been really bad for me. So I've been oddly, I mean, I was religiously uh, washing my hands and sanitizing at the very start of COVID, but I've been surprisingly calm Mm -hmm. um, about that. So I don't know, maybe I'm reconnecting with my body or trusting it more. I'm not sure. Or maybe we're better when the danger is real. I think right. sometimes we're better when the danger is real. Yeah, see, I'm but, not crazy. And then you're not as lonely with it because exactly. everybody is there. Yeah, see, it's, it's, who's crazy now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now you know what it's like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it's like you're alone in your body. I mean, that's like the one place where you're very alone and it is doing things that you have no consciousness of. Yeah. And no control over and that you have to trust in. Um, And I always felt like I was a being in a body. And I know that some people sort of feel at one with their bodies. And I always felt like I was a being kind of in a body. Stuck. Yeah, kind of claustrophobic. Yeah, me too. I mean, I've had, I'm, I'm better about it now, but it's taken a lot of work. Um. I remember, well, let me ask you this. When you were younger, were you afraid of going going crazy, quote unquote? Or did you yes. kind of, you were afraid of I it? I think I was afraid of it. I, I, yeah, because I think I had a lot of weird, I had a lot of nightmares as a kid. I had some sort of like depersonalization episodes where I would me wake too. up in the middle of the night and feel sort of separate from everything and everyone and everything yeah. would be weird and... Yeah, I think, I think I was always a little, a little afraid of going, of going nuts. You were afraid of going nuts as a kid. Oh God, uh, more as a young adult. I my my first mm-hmm. experience with depersonalization. I was fifteen, I think, and it was kind of in the midst of a lot of kind of traumatic things between my parents separating or beginning to separate. My mother had an affair with her brother-in-law the way that your dad thought that your mother did. (laughs) Um, That really happened. Um, So, you know, where I had grown up in this house of order and um, organization and cleanliness, and even though my dad, my mom was emotionally kind of unavailable my dad was very affectionate and then just in the middle of my teen years everything just blew open and everything I knew to be consistent wasn't so I think that's why kind of I had that that kind of started around 15 and I remember just wondering if it would ever go away was I going to be stuck feeling 
like nothing was real for the rest of my life. Wow. Wow. Um, and it was inspiring to read your book as far as um, my writing goes. It's kind of making me want to revisit my draft. Do it. I, yeah, I've noticed like as I'm reading <laughs> yours, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I had a time where I, you know, like I, I, almost every year of my life is marked by a different obsession or a different way to cope with or a different fear. Um, and it just started coming back as I was reading your book. So it made it a little. That makes me so happy. I shouldn't be happy that you went through that, but <laughs> no. I'm so happy. Okay, those are the best memoirs where they bring back your own life experiences. Yeah, I agree. Right. I mean, that that's what makes memoir really, I mean, that's why I read memoir. Exactly. Not so much to find out about other people's lives, but to kind of relive, like see my own life through their lens. Exactly. And I, <laughs> I read a lot of memoir young as a way to prove to myself that I wasn't crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, Interesting. oh, okay, let me corroborate my experience with every, every other humans. Let me see if I'm really that different or, you know, I always felt very different. <laughs> um, so I would kind of eat up memoir as a but way. But that's to... writers too. I mean, writers just feel different, right? Yeah. Artists, I mean, writers, which and came artists first? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know who the people are who feel normal. I don't get it. Not a clue. Not a clue. <laughs> if you find them, let me know. I imagine they're kind of boring, though. <laughs> yeah. See, that's what I think too. We don't really want to be that normal, right? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> we don't want to suffer, but we don't want to be that normal. Exactly. Um, so did the, the book came out April, 2020, is that correct? That's right. Right in the middle of the pandemic. I was going to ask part of the pandemic, April, March or April, I was in San Antonio for AWP shortly after everyone else had canceled and mm. it was mm. a ghost town. And mm. I, you know, a lot of the interviews and authors I've talked to in the last couple of years, it's been like. Yeah, my book came out right when COVID hit. I wonder how it was for you. I, yeah, I mean, I had I had a publicist who was planning to send me to various places, and it all got canceled, and everything went to Zoom. Yeah. Which has been, a, you know, a mixed experience, because you get to meet a lot of people all over the country. Yeah. Um. But I don't think that, if, from what I hear from the bookstores, people at Zoom readings don't necessarily buy the book the, w the, the way they do it in-person events. Right. Um, so there's that. And then my book just now was made a staff pick at Diesel Books. Oh. So I, w I was supposed to have my sort of publication event at Diesel Books, and that got canceled. Mm. And then it just got made, you know, a year later, a staff pick at Diesel Books. Right. So I think the bookstores are finally kind of reopening and coming back to life. But whether they'll go back and discover the books that came out a year ago, right. I don't know. I hope they do. I hope so, too. I mean, it definitely deserves a lot of publicity, I think. I, I love this you. book. Thank you. I'm going to pass it on to some close friends and, and whatnot. So. Thank you. Yeah. 
Are you working on anything else? Will there I be am. I mean, I'm writing about my relationship to my mom's body. I'm writing about the whole kind of illness, medical, strange obsessions. And, and I'm writing about a relationship I had with a guy in, um, I guess, the 1980s. And I'm not sure how those things are going to come together. Right. I mean, I called the, I th you know, my working title for the book is My Mind-Body Problems. Mm. But <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> yeah. how it will all add up. But I'm just following these threads. Um, it started out, I went back to journals I had kept in my 30s, and I was kind of having a dialogue with those journals. Right. Um, you know, thinking, who was this person? And can I remember having had these experiences? And... Why was I doing the weird stuff I was doing with men? What was going on there with men? Yeah. That's interesting. And I, sex. And I mean, I think I always felt like sex was going to save me. Say more. What do you mean? Like, like validate? That, that my body was like bad. You know, uh -huh. my body was bad and sick and, and, and that somehow I would have these these transcendent sexual experiences with men and I would feel intact and whole and healthy and right. powerful. Right. And that, that started as an adolescent where sex became the cure. Did it work? Well, <laughs> <laughs> not exactly. Did it help? Not exactly as planned. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I, did feel better at, during and right after sex than I felt sometimes otherwise. So, right. you know, all those endorphins and whatever. And I did feel powerful. I, I felt like I, you know, I could never do anything athletic as a kid. I was like the worst athlete. I was the uh -huh. last to be picked for everything. Uh -huh. And then it got to the age of, you know, making out. And I thought, hey, I'm pretty good at this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love in the book where you say making out is a sport, damn it. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, well, I super appreciate you sitting down to talk with me. Well, I've, I've enjoyed it and I've enjoyed getting to know you and I want to read your book.